Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Faith Christian Podcast. At Faith Christian, our purpose is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information about Faith Christian, check out our website, fccnp.org, or stop by on a Sunday morning. We'd love to meet you. Now we hope you enjoy this recent teaching from Faith Christian Church. Great to see you this morning. So glad uh, we get to spend some time together this weekend. Thanks for those of you who are tuned in online this morning. I think we got our sound problem fixed, so I think you can hear us now. Uh, we, uh, I want to mention a couple of things just uh, by way of announcement before we dig in this morning. Uh, I want to say a big thank you. Uh, we had a wonderful event. Um, I say we. I had nothing to do with this, which is why it was wonderful. Uh, this Friday, past Friday night, we had a lock-in for our faith student ministry. Had a bunch of kids, middle school and high school kids, spend the night here. They did a bunch of stuff uh, around the, the community and up in Canton and uh, had games and food and all kinds of activities. A wonderful event. The kids had a great time. But I just want to say a huge thank you to those grown-ups who are here all night long. We're some heroes in our midst. Those folks who stay up all night with uh, middle school and high school kids, wow, you're, you're amazing. So I know some of you are in the room this morning. So thank you for that. And uh, thanks to Noah and Kara and the rest of their team for uh, putting on a great event for our faith student ministry. Our faith kids ministry has an exciting event coming up this Friday night. It's a movie night. And so if you've got a kid in... Um, like kindergarten through a fifth grade, you want to be sure they're here Friday night for the Faith Kids uh, movie night, and don't want you to miss that. Uh, I want to let you kind of know uh, where we're going with our preaching time, our, our teaching time coming up here over the next couple of months, uh, because next month, in the month of February, I'm going to be in a series of sermons uh, that I'm, I'm very excited about. And let me just kind of tell you how we're going to get there, and then we're going to get into what we're talking about the next couple of weeks. Um, the last spring, last winter, um, I did a series that we called Soul Care. And we just talked about caring for our souls and how our souls are tired and ragged and, and beat down. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was one of the most um, well-received sermon series I've done in a long time. The feedback I heard from you and emails and texts and people sending the sermons to their friends across the country, um, it was just, a, just a, the, the response was overwhelming to me. And kind of as a follow-up to that sermon series, or really, if you will, uh, you know, season two uh, of that sermon series, um, in February, we're going to do a series that I'm calling And Mind. And we're going to have a conversation, a biblical conversation about mental health. And uh, I think this is going to be one of the most important conversations. We've talked uh, some of these big topics before, racism and things like that in the past. And this is one of these uh, conversations that we're going to have uh, that I think is critical for um, us in our society and our world today um, as followers of Jesus. Uh, mental health is important. And so we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to tell you right now, I'm not a mental health expert, but I've read a lot and I've learned a lot. And I've listened to a lot of people who are, and I'm going to do my best to communicate their thoughts uh, in that series. So I want to just call that out now because I don't want you to miss that. I want you to make plans to be here throughout the month of February uh, for this series we're calling And Mind uh, about mental health. Now, between now and then, uh, we're going to kick off a new series today uh, through the month of January that I'm calling this, How to Be Rich. Because who doesn't want to be rich, right? How to be rich. Now, I need you to notice as we dig into this this morning, the title of the sermon series is not how to get rich, because I don't know. <laughs> it's not how to get rich quickly. That's not our point. But I want to talk about how to be rich. And for this conversation, I need to begin with a, a foundational statement, because everything we're going to discuss over the next three weeks is, is built upon this one statement. All right, here's the statement. It's not bad to be rich, but most are bad at being rich. It's not bad to be rich, 
but most are bad at being rich. And we're going to spend the next several weeks in a passage of Scripture, one passage of Scripture, and it's a text that the Apostle Paul writes to his young protege in the faith, this guy by this young minister by the name of Timothy. Uh, Paul is a mentor. Timothy's a, a protege. He's been teaching Timothy. Paul's been teaching Timothy, bringing him along. And Timothy is the pastor of the church in a city called Ephesus, in, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now, Paul had planted this church, started this church years before, and he loves this church. He loves the people in this church. He's a part of this church. And so he has brought in his right-hand man, this young up-and-coming leader and pastor by the name of Timothy, and put Timothy in, in this church to lead and to mentor these people and to pastor this church in Ephesus. And so Paul writes a couple of books, uh, letters that we have in our Bible, First and Second Timothy, and these are letters to Timothy with instructions and encouragement, and let me, let me help you lead well your church in Ephesus. And so the verses that we're going to read, that we're going to just camp on for the next three weeks in this series of How to Be Rich, these verses are important verses that Paul is saying to Timothy, this is something important I need you to know as a young minister, as you minister to your church. And I'm going to tell you, these verses are just as important for this old minister as he ministers to his church. And so we're going to camp on these verses for the next three weeks. Here's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. Let me read this out loud. Follow along. Read it. You read it to yourself as I read it out loud as it's on the screen. I need these words to sit on you. I need us to, to, to wear these words for the next few weeks and let them become a part of how we think and who we are as followers of Jesus. Here's Paul's words to Timothy and my words to you. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, I hope you notice as we walk through those three verses. In those three verses, two times, Paul tells young Timothy, he mentors young Timothy, pastoring a church. Twice he says, command the rich. The word is command. I want to say three things real quick that the Bible teaches about rich people. We've got to get this out of the way up front. Here's what the Bible says about rich people. Here's the first one. God loves rich people. He does. And whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, God loves you a lot. God loves rich people. Here's the second one. God saves rich people. We see this all throughout the New Testament. Zacchaeus was a very wealthy tax collector. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. Joseph of Arimathea was this rich man who actually gave the family of Jesus a tomb to bury Jesus in when Jesus' body was taken off the cross. In Acts, you have a high-ranking government official from Africa who gets saved. In Acts chapter 10, you have a high-ranking military officer in Rome who he and his whole family get saved. In the next chapter, a wealthy woman named Lydia, she's a business owner, she's an entrepreneur, she's a civic leader, she gets saved. 
Our faith is built upon Father Abraham, who was a very wealthy man in the ancient culture. It's clear to see that God saves rich people. That's why Paul is telling Timothy how to teach them, how to command them. God loves rich people. God saves, saves rich people. Here's number three. It is hard to save rich people. This is not my bold assessment. This is the assessment of my rabbi. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 19. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And already the mental gymnastics have started. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't massage the words of Jesus to try to make them mean. Let Jesus mean what he said. It's hard to save rich people. In fact, one of the things that I've learned in being in ministry for 30-ish years now, being around churches my entire life, here's what I've learned. Prosperity is much more toxic to faith and discipleship than adversity. As a pastor, as your pastor, I have seen countless, countless times where people have gone through adversity and it has brought them closer to God. Maybe it was financial adversity. Maybe it was a relational disaster. Maybe it was a health crisis. And they can look back on that moment and they'll say, I don't want to go through that again. But I got to tell you, it brought me to my knees and I sought the Lord and I am closer to God because I went through such a hard time. But I have yet to hear, not one time in over 30 years of ministry, of the person who said, I was far from God, I didn't care about God, and then I became suddenly wealthy and I found Jesus. It just, it doesn't happen that way. My experience has been that few things cause people to drift away from God, from the body of Christ, more than gaining great wealth. It's not bad to be rich, but it takes intention at being good, at being rich. So thus, this, this series, How to Be Rich. So each week, I'm going to take a, 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 a I'm going to help, help you learn a principle from this text from 2 Timothy, uh, the a principle of how to be good at being rich, of how to be rich. And the first one is this, what I want to talk about today, and this, these words from Paul teaches us that in order to, to be good at being rich, to be rich, we have to maintain humility. But to maintain humility. Look again at the first phrase of this text. 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. Well, this begs the question. Why is the very first thing that Paul associates with affluence, arrogance? What is it about affluence that tempts us to arrogance? Well, I, th I thought about that, and I came up with three things. Now, I'm going I'm to warn you before I, before I give you these three things of, of why, this is not, thus saith the Lord. This is, thus saith Larry. These are my opinions, okay? So take them for what it's worth, but here's what I found. Here's what I, I think. Here's one idea. Isn't it true that wealth can produce a false, false sense of security? That riches make us susceptible to the illusion that we take control of our future. We talked about being in control a lot last week. I hope you were here. 
The idea that if I could just amass enough stuff that nothing tomorrow can touch me. How vain is that? To think that because you're rich, you are immune from drunk drivers or rogue cancer cells. But that's what wealth does. It can produce this false sense of security. Here's another thing. Wealth can fuel a lust for notoriety. Riches can make us susceptible to the illusion that my net worth affects my self-worth. And can I just say, as a culture, we have drunk this Kool-Aid. Our culture celebrates wealth and notoriety. And you know it's true because of the way we defer to the wealthy. You know I'm telling the truth. We treat rich people differently in almost every area of life, even the church. The devil uses our affection for wealth to divide people. Here's another one. I think it would be fair to say that one reason that wealth makes us arrogant is that wealth enables us to escape accountability. One appeal of being financially secure is <laughs> nobody can tell me what to do. Because I, they, they, can't, they can't know what to do. Twice, twice Paul tells Timothy, command the rich. Command the thing. Well, here's, here's the thing. Rich people don't like to be commanded. Rich people don't like to be told what to do. That's one of the perks of being rich. I don't have to do what anybody says anymore. So what happens is, as one's wealth amasses, one is much less likely to receive direct, honest feedback and truth spoken into their lives. Now, maybe at this point, I need to remind you, God loves rich people. He does. And just like no one should be thought more of because they're rich, nobody should be thought less of because they're rich. And by the way, Paul does not write, tell rich people to stop being rich. It's not what he says. What Paul wants Timothy to help rich Christians do is guard against pride. Why? Because God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble, Scripture teaches so let me tell you, whether you have a little or whether you have a lot, you need a lot of grace. And God gives grace to the humble. So you better stay humble. But that's hard to do if you're rich. So rich Christians must, must be vigilant about resisting the prevailing cultural nar narratives that produce arrogance. Look at this picture. It's a very early picture of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. There it is. There it is. You, you've seen these guys before. These are the guys who founded Apple. You may have heard that. You probably have one of their products in your pocket right now. In the early days at the company of Apple, everyone knew everybody. Everybody called each other by name. It was a small company, a small startup. But as the company grew, they started having, uh, and more and more employees, they started having badges with their names on them so people would know who you were. And so they decided that they were going to put a number on the badge. When you got your, your, your name badge with your name on it, it would have a number on it, and the numbers were in the order that you got hired by the company, which was fine. For Steve Wozniak, he got number one. Steve Jobs was angry because he got number two. <laughs> so he took zero, changed his tag to zero because he wasn't going to be number two to anybody. And if you know their story, you already know that their friendship and their partnership eventually dissolved over en enmity 
and jealousy. But yet we celebrate this kind of pride. We read and write biographies. We write movies about this when we need to eliminate this kind of pride. Again, here's this week's big principle, right from the Word of God. If we're going to be good at being rich, we must remember you've got to maintain humility. You're not going to drift into this. You're not going to accidentally do this. Not in this culture. Not in this culture. You're going to have to pursue it. So in our text, there are three ideas that will help us stay humble. Here's the first one. We have to admit, admit your material wealth. When I talk about being rich, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. Why is it that we are so hesitant to admit that God has blessed us with wealth? In what other part of our lives are we so reluctant to acknowledge the blessing of God? If I walk up to you in the atrium after the service, to say, service today and I say, man, 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 you look great. You are really healthy. You might say, oh, praise God. He's really blessed me with some good health. And I say, oh, and look at your family. You got a beautiful family. Oh, praise God. God has just blessed our family. He's given me this beautiful family. Yes, I'm there. And I'll say to you, and you are so wealthy. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now, just don't get out of hand. Why are we so reluctant to do that? Some of you have met our dog, Teddy. I should have brought a picture. I didn't. Teddy is an English cream retriever, which sounds very, very fancy, and apparently it is. Because if you go on the, the, to look for a dog and you want to buy an English cream retriever, it's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars for an English cream retriever. But we have this dog. But anytime I'm telling anybody about my dog, like I'm about to do now, I'm quick to tell you, oh, we didn't pay for him. We rescued him. He, 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 we, we adopted him. We didn't pay a dime for Teddy. Why would I be so concerned, especially people I don't know, why would I be so concerned that you would think I spent a couple of grand on a dog? Why are we so reluctant to admit our wealth? Many of us have traveled to third world countries. You've been on a mission trip. You went to Arizona. You've been on the reservation. You've been in the inner city. Many of us have been places in our lives where we have seen extreme poverty. And just for a moment on those trips, in those locations, we had to acknowledge we are really blessed. But then we came back home, and it didn't take long to shake off that acknowledgement and to forget just how blessed we really are. So let me ask you this question. When global Christians, Christians around the world, when they read the text that, we just, that you just listened to, that I just read to you from 1 Timothy 6 a few minutes ago, who do you think they think about? When women in burqas, speaking softly in a dark room in Afghanistan, read 1 Timothy 6, who are they thinking about? In underground churches in China, and in a prison cell in North Korea, when your brothers and sisters read, uh, sit under, under a mango tree in Zambia, when they read, command the rich, who do they think of? It's us. It's us. You probably know the name Bill Gates, one of the, if not the wealthiest man on the planet. Now, Bill Gates has done a lot of good with his wealth. He's done a lot of philanthropy around the world. And one time, he's in a mud hut in Africa, 
And as he leaves this mud hut, the interpreter says to the, to the woman who lives in the hut that the man who was just here, do you know who that was? That is the richest man in the world. And this woman living in this mud hut in Africa, completely unimpressed, the woman in the hut replied, well, everybody in the West is rich. If you had walked into that hut after Bill Gates, she would have seen you the same way she sees him, as the possessor of incalculable wealth, wealth that she will never know. So let me say this. Don't confuse feeling rich with being rich. Sometime today, you're going to flip on a light switch and light is going to come on. Sometime today, you're going to turn a tap and clean water, even hot water, is going to flow. Will you get into a car today? Do you have clothes to wear? Besides the one that are on your body right now, do you have clothes to wear? If you wake up tomorrow morning not feeling well, can you get some over-the-counter medicine or call a doctor and get some antibiotic? You are rich. And it's not bad to be rich. But it is, it is an affront to God to not recognize it and not be grateful for it. In fact, it's arrogant. So I am charged by the Spirit of God as a teaching pastor to tell you you're rich and to teach you how to get good at it how to be rich here's what that means here's our second big idea first we admit our wealth second we must submit to biblical teachings as rich christians we must put ourselves under the word of god in a humble posture or to put it in this way paul says command the rich i stole this phrase i love this phrase but I, I, i'm gonna give it to you it's it's commendable to be commandable. Isn't that good? It's commendable to be commandable. And Paul says, command the rich. Most of, you, most of us know, are familiar with the, the organization Habitat for Humanity. They build houses and communities for people that need houses, need, need homes. Uh, the guy who uh, started Habitat for Humanity, was a guy by the name of Millard Fuller. And one time, Millard Fuller was in a meeting with a group of pastors sitting around this big table, this conference kind of conference room, and they're having this conversation, and they're talking about global poverty. And in this conversation, which makes sense, he's, you know, Habitat for Humanity, having this conversation about global poverty, and all the pastors, they all agree. Oh, they're, they're all like, yeah, well, yeah, people are just too greedy. People are just too greedy. And so the Millard Fuller asked this seemingly innocuous question. He asked the, the group of pastors, do you think that it's possible to build a house that is so big that it is sinful to live in it? That's a great question. Stir on that one tonight as you're laying awake trying not, not being able to go to sleep. Is it possible to build a house that is so big that it's sinful to live in it? Well, the pastors sit around this table, these religious leaders, they discussed it for a little bit, and they finally decided, well, yeah, I, I guess it is. I guess it is possible to build a house that's so big that it would be sinful to live in it. So Fuller asked the follow-up question. When? When is it too big? When is, that, when is it that a house is too big that it's sinful to live in it? When there was this awkward silence and some chuckles, kind of like you heard in the room right now. When is it? 
Finally, one pastor said what everyone else was thinking. When it's bigger than mine. This is what we do with this conversation. We say, well, this is something that they need to think about. I, somebody else should be here this morning to hear this sermon because I don't need it, but somebody else who needs to be here they're not here. They didn't come because of the snow. They needed to hear this this morning. No, it wasn't me. We think, we hear this scripture in 1 Timothy 6. We think, well, that's for them. This is not for me. If you're going to stay humble, you've got to hear what the word of God says about wealth. And let me just tell you, it says a lot. Did you know that there are over 500 verses in the Bible about prayer? That seems like a lot, right? 500 verses, that seems like a lot. And in prayer, that's something that's pretty important to us God people, us, us Christians, us church people. That, that's an important topic. 500, that seems like a good number. 500 verses on prayer in the Bible. Do you know how many verses there are in the Bible about money and wealth and riches? 500 on prayer, what do you think? 300? 400? 200? Try 2,000. Over 2,000 verses of the Bible are about wealth and riches. Most of them, most of them were spoken by Jesus. You know, the guy that we follow as Christ followers. Jesus talked about money all the time. All the time. One out of every eight verses that Jesus speaks, that Jesus speaks, one out of every eight verses is about money or riches or wealth. 16 of his 38 parables were about money or riches or wealth. Jesus had to have been the first preacher that ever got criticized by, well, all he ever talks about is money. He had to be. And to guard against arrogance, we have to put ourselves under the word of God and let it plant thoughts that will uproot seeds of pride. Let me show you one of these verses. This is in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is leading the people of Israel. They've been in Egyptian slavery for generations. Now they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And now finally, finally, the people of God, the, the, the Hebrew children, they are about to go into the promised land. And Moses, who has led them out of slavery, has led them through the wilderness, is about to die. He's giving them his kind of final words, his last charge as he sends them into the promised land. He reminds them, he reminds them that for the last 40 years that God supernaturally fed them. They'd go outside in the morning and there would be breakfast on the ground. It was called manna. Why did God do that? Because they were hungry? Well, no, not just that. Because God always has a deeper reason. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 8. God did this, Moses says to the people. God did this to take away your pride. Hold on just a second. God knows that you're about to enter a land of plenty. God knows that you are about to experience outrageous prosperity and to guard against pride. I'm putting in your memory banks over the last 35 years of the truth that I am the source of your blessing. God did this to take away your pride. He did it to test you so that things would go well for you in the end. You might say to yourself, he goes on, I'm rich because of my own power and strength. Remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Let those words cultivate a spirit of humility in you. Yes, you work hard. Yes, you manage your finances well. Yes, you invest well. Yes, you have gifts. Yes, you have training. Yes, you went to school. Yes, you got an education. Yes, there are open doors of opportunity. I acknowledge all of this. Where did it come from? Where did it come from? 
the gifting, the opportunities, the skills, the mind that you use. You have it because God gave it. He gave us the ability to produce wealth, not so that we would be proud, but so that we would do good. Here's the last thing we have to remember if we're going to stay humble. We need to admit, your, admit our material wealth, submit to biblical teachings, and finally, we must commit to eternal goals because here is the most arrogant thought that wealth tempts us to have, the assumption that it is all for my consumption. I earned it. I made it. It's for me. That was the problem of the man that Jesus called a rich fool. He had the capacity to achieve great wealth, and he did. But instead of thinking, how can I bless others with my wealth, he thought, how can I build a bigger barn to store all my wealth and keep it for myself? And Jesus called him a fool because he was a pail instead of a pipe. Because what God sent to him never flew through him. You see, God wants, our, wants to use our affluence for influence. We have something in the present world that we could use for influence in the coming world. Listen again to our text, verse 19. Lay up treasure as a firm foundation for the coming age. And I think the best way that we could invest in eternal goals is when we use our money to help people find Jesus. Listen again to the words of Jesus, Luke 16. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you will be faithful in large ones. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? I believe that Christians like you and me, living right now in this country, in 2024, Followers of Jesus right now in the United States of America have been blessed with more material wealth than any generation of disciples in history. Since the day that Jesus came out of the tomb, we are blessed with more wealth than any other followers of Jesus in history. We have an enormous capacity to fuel God's rescue mission, and this should make us very grateful and very humble and very mindful that to whom much is given, much is expected. And so we've got to be good at being rich in this present world because we know the only true, sure investment is in the next. So let me close with one more story. The picture that you're going to see here is of this fellow by the name of Matt Emmons. This picture was taken at the 2004 Summer Olympic Games in Athens. Matt Emmons is a sharpshooter, shoots air rifles, and he's a marksman, and he's really, really good. I mean, you've got to be to go to the Olympics to do this right. He's won many, many awards around the world. He's actually been to the Olympics three or four times now. He was on the U.S. rifle team, and the event was the 50-meter rifle, 50 meters away, they shoot the guns, right? It was the last round of the event in 2004 in Athens. Matthew Emmons was so far ahead of the competitors that all he had to do was hit the target. He didn't have to hit the bullseye. He just had to hit the target, and he would win the gold. And so he took his stance, shouldered his rifle, 
took aim, took a deep breath, and fired. Hit the bullseye right in the middle, nailed it. The computer didn't register anything. He looked confused. He saw the picture. He looked confused. The computer didn't register that he hit anything. That was weird. He calls the officials over. They look confused. They saw him hit the bullseye. Matthew Emmons was shooting in lane two. He hit the bullseye of the target for lane three. He didn't win the gold. He finished in eighth place. He was gifted. He was committed. He hit the target he was aiming at. He was aiming at the wrong target. I am charged, as a pastor, I am charged by the Holy Spirit to teach you, what? it's the wrong word, to command you to aim at the right target with your wealth. There is no glory in dying a rich fool. So let me sum it up for you in one sentence. The proud think they are entitled. They do. I earned it. It's mine. I can do with it what I want. The proud think they're entitled. The humble know they're entrusted. And you and I have been entrusted with great wealth so that we can make a great difference. Let me pray for us. If our communion team will take your places, please. God, I thank you for blessing us with great wealth. We confess that we have not always been as quick as we should be to admit it and to be grateful for it. But we will do better. What we ask for now, Father, is a greater desire and a greater capacity to see how we could be good at being rich. How we can manage well what Jesus has given us so faithfully that when he returns, he could only say to us, well done, well done. We pray this in Jesus' name.